you're listening to the Bitcoin Takeover Podcast, the Bitcoin podcast for OGs and intermediaries. Make sure you subscribe, leave a comment, and like this episode. Also, read the new BTCT KVR magazine. This episode is sponsored by Wasabi Wallet, Crypto Steel, Shop in a Bit, and Sadodime. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening. Welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover Podcast. I'm Vlad and today I'm doing a very special interview here at the Proof of Work Summit in Prague. And I'm sitting next to Phil Zimmerman, who is a legendary cypherpunk who fought the privacy wars in the 1990s to make it safe for projects like Bitcoin to exist. And there is a lot to Phil Zimmerman. You can look up his name. It's a double N and there is a specific page on his website, which mentions exactly that you should always write it with a double N and it seems like people get that wrong many times and also something that you should know during this intro is that he was he hired Hal Finney I think it was the first employee who worked at PGP yeah and you've had him as an employee for a long time yeah I think before that he was a video game developer and then you got him to work on PGP, which is pretty good privacy technology to encrypt emails. And Satoshi Nakamoto used PGP. And I don't think if it wasn't for PGP that Bitcoin could exist for two reasons. First of all, there was that privacy wars situation, which made it safe for someone like Satoshi to emerge. Secondly, because Satoshi used PGP. So I'm, I'm awestruck. And I'm going to stop talking. Sorry, I even choked. It's good okay. to have you, sir. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Keep the microphone a oh, bit okay. closer to your mouth. Yep. All right. So what was it like in the 1990s with the cypherpunk scene? Do you feel like you were part of that whole movement that was on the cover of Wired magazine with Eric Hughes and all of that? Or were you just an independent researcher? I, I was more independent. I lived in Boulder, Colorado at the time, and they were in Silicon Valley. And so I was geographically separated. Um, when I was working on PGP, at first I was working alone. And, and so there was a lot of uh, separation between them. Also, ideal, my ideology was not quite as aligned with libertarian thought. I'm not a libertarian. I'm not an anarchist. I'm, you know, I'm a moderate. <laughs> and, and I was just, I liked writing the software at the time. I was a software engineer. And more of a, an applied cryptographer, not a theoretician. So, um, but, you know, I did agree with the cypherpunks on a lot of things. I, uh, from a policy perspective, I, I thought that, uh, you know, their, their um, 
their policy interests were aligned with my own, largely, except for the libertarian and anarchy part. <laughs> yeah, I read part of the Cyphernomicon by Timothy May. Yeah. And I found it a bit extreme at parts, but at the same yeah. time, I liked the whole spirit of the movement. It was uncompromising. I think that's the word that describes it best. Yeah, I found Tim May's um, polemics were quite extreme, and that's part of why I wasn't didn't feel as aligned as uh, you know I, I was not fully aligned with their with the cypherpunks uh, sentiments, and maybe maybe I was putting too much. Uh, reading too much from one guy but you know it, i didn't feel the same way but I, you were on the mailing list right that's an interesting question I, I i think i was i'm not sure probably it's been 30 years so <laughs> yeah i understand that where i was getting with this is that nowadays we tend to argue a lot on social media and whatever and i was curious if there were ideological debates or arguments on mailing lists oh, back I, in the day i didn't get into any arguments i i was mostly silent i just wrote code um, i let other people make the arguments i mean after after the criminal investigation got underway i i started speaking publicly and 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 so I did make a lot of arguments there. There, I, I I was trying to make the case for why we needed strong cryptography. We had to get away from the you know World War II attitude of trying to control this technology. The information age had arrived. It was time for us to embrace it as part of the the complexities of uh, information society. When you published PGP online, was it under the MIT license, which is open source? Well, I think the first version of PGP I published under the GNU general public license. Because I know you did publish it at MIT, so I, I, I did this connection, which I guess was wrong. Well, later on, um, I, I started having more cooperation with uh, MIT because they, MIT Press published the book, the two books, uh, the PGP User's Guide and the PGP Source Code book. <clears throat> also, they put PGP on their FTP site, and that was convenient for me. They were showing their solidarity by sort of implicitly saying to the feds, look, you know, if publishing this on the internet is a crime, then you should arrest MIT also. Um, so I appreciated that vote of solidarity. Yeah. And they gave me an email address. <laughs> I'm not going to mention it, but I think you, you still use some of that. Anyway, where I was getting with this is that basically I'm not aware of open source software that was being published and was getting popular before PGP. Linux came out later. Internet browsers like Firefox came out way later. It's very hard for me to think of open source software well, before th PGP. That, that's true, but I, I think that, well, my motivation for making PGP open source was not the usual reasons why people make their software open source. Um, I agreed with the idea of open source. I thought it was a great idea. You know, I, I was philosophically aligned with open source, but it wasn't my prime motivation for making PGP open source. Rather, I wanted PGP to get a lot of peer review. 
and, and I thought that the best way to achieve that was to make it open source. So um, I was more interested in, in the goals of having strong encryption software be extensively peer reviewed and benefiting from that. So, you know, open source was a way of achieving that. Wasabi Wallet is unfairly private. It's the most advanced and most used Bitcoin privacy wallet with half a million downloads across Windows, Mac OS, and Linux, as well as thousands of fresh new Bitcoins getting mixed every month. Wasabi makes use of the new generation Wabi Sabi engine to create mega coin joins, thus mixing your Bitcoins with those of hundreds of other users. From amounts lower than 0.01 BTC and remixes, you pay no coordination fee. Even if you don't use CoinJoins, Wasabi Wallet has a native Tor integration and downloads block filters to help you keep your network level and public key privacy. Download Wasabi Wallet for free today at wasabiwallet.io and experience the future of Bitcoin privacy. That was a good reason, but I guess that also got you into trouble because open source means that anyone can read, can copy, can modify, can reverse engineer <clears throat> what's happening there to replicate, distribute, maybe sell if they want. Yeah. Uh, well, I didn't want them to sell it. I, you know, I wanted to, if anybody's going to sell it, I'd rather it be me. But I wasn't trying to sell it. I was giving it away. Um, uh, and, and so... Uh, you know, later on, I met someone who was a senior cryptographer at NSA who had retired, and he told me, Robert Morris, um, you might remember that there was a internet worm, one of the early internet worms was Robert Morris Jr., his son. But Robert Morris Sr. was the most senior cryptographer at NSA, and I met him many years later after he retired. And he told me that um, that one of the things that worried the NSA about the publication of PGP was that it included source code and that the, the guys at NSA looked at this and their biggest concern was that this would teach a lot of people how to do good um, key management and good um, software development for you know, uh, public key cryptography. They were afraid of it metastasizing and it, it did, and you know, a lot of people looked at it and learned from it and developed their own applications. And, um, you know, that we, we saw the emergence of a lot of protocols. Now, I don't want to take credit for all those protocols. I'm just saying that, that PGP helped teach a lot of people how to, how to do um, public key cryptography in software. Speaking of public keys, it was one of the first systems of which I'm aware, which had this structure with a public key and a private key. And the public key was for identification to prove that it was you who sent that message and you would sign the message with the private key and that was enough of a proof for the other person to know that, first of all, yes, it was encrypted, but there was also this layer of identification to know yeah. that it was you who sent the message. Mm -hmm. I think that's really cool, and Bitcoin developers still use that to this day. Yeah. Well, I didn't invent that idea. That was part of the, that, that, that came with the invention of public key cryptography. I just applied it. I'm not a, I'm not a real cryptographer. I'm, I'm an applied cryptographer. Not, I'm not a theoretician, so um, 
At that time, I was just interested in writing software that would implement these ideas. And actually, I haven't written any software for many years. Um, I've, you know, my, my life was taken over by the political and legal travails of PGP, and I got away from writing code myself. Instead, I had volunteers work on it for me. Which is, I guess, even better. Because there is only so much work you can do yourself. That's right. But yeah. others can keep the project alive in perpetuity. That's right. And one of those volunteers was Hal Finney. Um, so um, it was great. I, I loved working with Hal. He was, uh, he was a, a great guy and a, and a uh, kind and generous soul. You know, uh, Hal, was, uh, Hal was an absolute genius, and what we see often happens with geniuses is that they pay for their genius with um, social mal maladroitness. You know, they, they don't, they, they sometimes lack emotional maturity. But that never happened to Hal. Hal did have good emotional maturity, and he was a generous, kind person. And so... If they ever wanted to make a movie about Hal, they'd have to have Tom Hanks play him. You think you would have liked, liked Tom Hanks to play his biopic? Well, I think they're of comparable age, but as the years go by, Tom Hanks keeps getting older and Hal doesn't because he died many years ago. Yeah, it's certainly interesting that he was the first person you hired. And why was that? Was he such a special coder or was he just the most enthusiastic? Well, Hal had been working on PGP for um, a couple of years before that, uh, almost since I published version one. Uh, he immediately volunteered to help and it helped us get to version two. In version one, I didn't have the trust model implemented yet. Um, because I ran out of time. I missed five mortgage payments writing it, and I was about to lose the house. And so I had to release it without the trust model. Uh, I knew what the trust model had to be. I knew how it should work, but I didn't have time to write it. So version two came out 15 months after version one, and that did have the trust model, largely similar to the way it is today. And Hal worked on that. Hal worked on uh, implementing that. Hal was also very passionate about creating something like Bitcoin. He had reusable proof of work that w was published in 2004. He was friends with Nick Sabo, who did his Bitgold experiment, which never came to fruition. Did he ever talk about internet money and created a currency that's native to the internet? Well, I knew that he was working on proof of work. Um, uh, and, you know, and that solves the double spending problem. So that's a very clever, that's a very clever idea. Proof of work had already existed for solving other problems. I mean, one of the, one of the earlier problems that it, that it was proposed as a solution was uh, spam. Uh, Microsoft had a project called Penny, um, Penny Black, named after the first postage stamp that happened I don't know, centuries ago in England. But pe the Penny Black Project used proof of work to try to reduce uh, how much spam you get. So you would send somebody an email and your mail server would talk to the mail, their mail server and give it a, uh, the, 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 the recipient's mail server would give a cryptographic puzzle 
to solve to the sender's mail server. And then it would have to solve that puzzle, which is, involves finding a hash pre-image. And, um, and then it would send the email along with the solution. And it would, the recipient would, mail server would check that solution. And if it was correct, it would deliver the email. Mm -hmm. And so that was a clever idea, except that that was before email uh, spam really took off with um, bot networks, where you oh, yeah. had you know thousands of, of PCs uh, participating in the spamming. And so even if that would increase the workload for a spammer, if he distributes it amongst thousands of PCs, he could overcome this. So that may be why Penny Black never became a widely deployed uh, solution. But anyway, that was one use of proof of work. And um, later, proof of work was used to uh, solve the double spending problem, along with the blockchain construct. CryptoSteel is the original Bitcoin cold storage backup, and it's been innovating self-custody since 2013. Designed and manufactured in Europe from the finest and most resistant stainless steel, the CryptoSteel cassette and the CryptoSteel capsule are industry standards. These cold storage devices are made to resist house fires, extreme floods, and physical shocks. You can also use CryptoSteel to store your important passwords, BIP39 passphrase, or Noster private key. Buy your crypto steel today from cryptosteel.com and use promo code BTCTKVR to get a 10% discount. Crypto steel. Secure your Bitcoin like an OG. I've asked you about Helfini potentially thinking about creating a digital currency which is native to the internet, but did you ever have that idea or did you have a concept for this? I know in the 90s it was a big thing. People were thinking how to send each other money for servers and remailers and stuff like that without using banks? I, I, never, I never had any ideas about um, doing cryptocurrencies. That wasn't my focus. I was just focused on privacy technologies. Uh, my, my biggest interest after PGP was um, secure telephony. And uh, in fact, I wanted to do secure telephony first before email, but it, it was too early. Um, the enabling technologies weren't there yet. Nobody had broadband, for example, and the SIP protocol wasn't invented yet, so I had to wait. I did try to do it in 1995 with PGP phone, but it was a decade too early. So um, a decade later when uh, the SIP protocol helped with the signaling part of the call and then there was RTP um, to handle the media, then it was time, and, and lots of people were getting broadband around that time. So then, then it was time to put my attention back on secure telephony. I also have to ask you about this, because today you showed me there is an application in the App Store and, and Google Play, which uses cryptography similar to Signals, but has some interesting features of its own. It's a messaging app that's encrypted. Can yeah. you tell me more about that? That's Silent Phone from Silent Circle. And um, it's, a, it's a really nice secure telephony project um, that, um, that solves the man in the middle problem in a, in a unique way. Uh, it's it's tailor-made for, it's, a, it's an encryption protocol that's tailor-made for telephony. 
Um, Signal is a, is a protocol used for text messaging. And you can use Signal to transport a session key that, to then feed into telephony. Then you, but, um, but my protocol, ZRTP, uh, is designed specifically for telephony. And I do use the Signal protocol for text messaging. So the, the app actually does both text messaging and attachments and mm -hmm. telephony. So... By telephony, you also mean video calls and stuff? Yeah, yeah, voice and video. So everything is encrypted with your application? Yeah, end-to-end. -end. Does it cause any kind of lag, or is it fluid? No, it, it, it doesn't take much time for the encryption. You know, uh, voice compression takes more computing than the encryption. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean... Um, you know, nobody would use encryption if it was too slow. I mean, for example, disk encryption has to be fast. Nobody would use it otherwise. Because the disk is a very high-speed I.O. device. When you tell me about encryption, I think about stuff like Tor, which usually slows down your connection. It does, yeah. Or NIM. I spoke with the guys from NIM last year, and they told me that when they do a video call, there's like a few seconds of delay. Yeah, you know, video calls are not a, a place where you want to have that kind of latency. Um, you know, when you're, when you're doing email, you can go through intermediaries. Uh, you know, there's protocols for that. There, there's um, mixing of emails. Um, um, you know, there's onion routing of e emails. And nobody cares if that takes extra time because it's email. Uh, web browsers, um, they have to be faster. And so people will tolerate a little bit of delay for web browsing, but not much. But for telephony, for having a voice or video conversation, there's no tolerance for uh, latency. People hate latency when it comes to telephony. I mean, if you have some latency in there, you can actually get people to fight <laughs> because you keep stepping on each other's mm -hmm. lines and, and it sounds like you're interrupting the other person. You're not trying to interrupt them, but you think they stopped talking. They paused, so you start talking and oops, they're, now they're talking. But they talked earlier, but you didn't get it in time. So uh, yeah, uh, people hate that. Since this is a Bitcoin podcast, I have to return to the main topic, which is Bitcoin. Yeah. And I have to ask you, when was the first time when you read or heard about Bitcoin and what did you think about it? Oh, I don't remember what, what time that was. Um, I heard about it pretty early in the process um, when it first came out. I, but I, I wasn't that interested in it at the time. I was focusing on telephony. So you are not interested means that you didn't care much to look into it or something? I figured I'd get to it later. <laughs> I, I remember. That was at a time when I was really focused on, on secure telephony. I remember Adam Beck saying that for many years, Bitcoin was like the holy grail. Not necessarily Bitcoin, but solving the double spending problem. That was a very difficult problem to solve. I, you know, nobody had produced an adequate solution until Bitcoin came along. But you are not quite interested in the topic. 
No, I, I only had a limited, uh, you know, there's only so many hours in a day, and I was devoting my attention on privacy of personal communication. And that, that was, you know, that's where I was putting my effort. But when you think about the fact that your legal battles led to the creation of Bitcoin indirectly, are you proud of the fact that this type of money can exist today because you're willing to fight back in the 90s? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, look, I was, uh, I was interested. I found Bitcoin to be interesting and, a, and a, a really positive idea when I first heard about it. But I find that today, as the years have gone by, so many years have passed, and there's been an evolution of the environment around Bitcoin. And I'm kind of disappointed to see that there's so much criminality. It, not so much Bitcoin exactly, uh, I, but I mean, Bit, Bitcoin itself attracts a lot of criminality. But more importantly, all the, there's thousands of cryptocurrencies and there, there's an awful lot of fraud and pump and dump. And, and that's, that's disappointing. Um, I, and and the, the ransomware, uh, which is mostly mm -hmm. Bitcoin, is, that's disappointing. And then there's the carbon footprint. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of alarming. <laughs> uh, so those things worry me about Bitcoin. And so even though conceptually in the abstract, I thought it was a great idea, it would have been a better outcome if it could have gotten this far without those things. So I'd like, I wish I could see some engineering effort putting, put into trying to develop countermeasures to those problems. Remember the paper wallet? Ah, uh, yes, the good old days when you printed your Bitcoin private key on an offline computer? It was so fun, but not really easy and totally not secure. Today, we have Sadodime, a chip card that acts just like your good old paper wallet, but with all the modern security features and top-notch functionality. It turns your Bitcoin into a bearer asset, which you can easily trade in person. Thanks to NFC, you can use the Sadodime card with your smartphone. Creating a new pair of Bitcoin keys takes just two swipes. Check your balance in real time, create multiple key pairs. Whenever you want, you can reveal your Bitcoin wallet's private key with just a single click. The simple uncluttered interface lets you quickly see if a key pair has been unsealed. Finally, the cold storage you've been looking for. Available now on sadodime.io. This was going to be my next question based on our conversation earlier. Because you, you know quite a bit about Bitcoin, given your understanding of applied cryptography, you, you have a greater depth of understanding some aspects of it. And I was curious if you have any ideas how to improve it or how you would design it differently. Well, I, I am interested in, I mean, the carbon footprint part is something that interests me a lot. Um, and I, I've been trying to develop some ideas, uh, but my ideas aren't good enough yet. Um, I'd, I'd like to talk to other people about it. So um, I need to improve the ideas before they're not ready for, for publishing. They, you know, they have to be debugged. Is there any cryptography project that you look at and you think that you wish you built that? Or you think you could have done it better? Well, I... I um, you know, I, I focused on different areas. I, I, I think Bitcoin is a very clever protocol, and, and I have a, a lot of respect 
enormous respect for uh, the guy who invented it. Um, you know who it is? Uh, I wouldn't care to speculate as to who it might be. Um, but uh, but I do have a lot of respect for him, and 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 I didn't. That's not where I put my attention. I put my attention on personal uh, communication protocols to to have privacy and and encryption, both for email and for telephony. Um, I would like to do more, but I don't think I'm going to be doing it in cryptocurrency. There's I, I think David Chom came up with. The XX network, Elixir or something. That what that's what it used to be called, and he tried to do messaging, which is end-to-end -end encrypted and also doesn't leak metadata. Did you have time to look into that? I haven't looked at that. Um, I find that everything that Chom does is e extremely brilliant, um, and so I have a lot of respect for his uh, intelligence. Uh, in his ability to design uh, really interesting protocols. However, I also note that David Chom likes to patent his ideas, and th that makes it difficult for those ideas to gain market acceptance. And, and so, I mean, his ideas of blinded signatures and, you know, his sort of e-cash ideas that preceded Bitcoin were clever ideas, but they never got much traction because they were encumbered so much with patents. Now, those patents have expired, but so much time has passed that other approaches to uh, electronic cash have uh, overtaken them. So, like Bitcoin, for example. Are you suggesting that Bitcoin could have been invented much sooner if David Chom did not patent eCash? No, no. No, what I'm saying is that David Chom's ideas um, didn't get very far in the marketplace because they were encumbered by patents. And, and so, and, and he likes to patent a lot of things. And as brilliant as his ideas are, I think that there would be more acceptance of his ideas if they were not aggressively patented. I've heard you talk about Shamir's secret sharing today. And it's a pretty smart scheme for sharing secrets, basically. And it's also used for Bitcoin private keys to split your key into multiple shards. Yeah. Do you think that's a good approach? I, I do, uh, because, I mean, when you think about all the, uh, the sort of terrible tragedy of people losing their Bitcoin wallets, um, you know, they forgot their, their keys or they forgot their passphrase or something for their Bitcoin wallet. And, and, and so people have lost a lot of money. I you know, remember that there's the story of that guy, I think in the UK, that had lost millions of dollars in a landfill because mm -hmm. it was a disk drive. Uh, and he, was, he was getting pretty desperate. I mean, it's a terrible tragedy. <laughs> so having some a, a way to take uh, a key for a Bitcoin wallet and split it into shares, and then giving those shares to your friends to mm -hmm. you know, help you recover them, um, it's a it's a good way to do it. it, you know. That would cut down on the misery that people have to endure when they lose their Bitcoin keys. What's next for you? What do you work on, and what do you plan to still do? You travel around the world giving talks about what it was like to fight for privacy back in the '90s, and you also warn people that end-to-end -end encryption might be. Not necessarily ended, but compromised. 
Yeah, we are facing uh, government pushback on end-to-end -end encryption for the past few years, and we have to push back and make sure that, that they don't take that away. My concern is that democracies around the world are, have been sliding into autocracies. And, and if that happens, we need to have people have access to end-to-end -end encryption so that they can resist this, the, the loss of democracies into autocracies. They need to be able to push back and organize politically if that happens. And they can't do that if they don't have end-to-end -end encryption. The other concern that I have about end-to-end -end encryption is that we often find ourselves trying to communicate through networks that are controlled by China. You know, Huawei has built a lot of 5G infrastructure uh, in Europe in particular, but in other parts of the world as well. And uh, the European democracies are starting to realize that they need to take a step back from 5G infrastructure from Huawei. But it's going to take them a while to roll that back. In the meantime, uh, you know, there's too much European network traffic that's going across a network controlled by a potential enemy. And that's a bad national security risk for a lot of the Western democracies in Europe. And so um, we need to have end-to-end -end encryption as the, as the safe, safest countermeasure to that. What we really need to do is to get rid of the Huawei infrastructure. But short of that, or while we're waiting for that to happen, we should have end-to-end -end encryption as, and for national security reasons. I guess it's sort of like a Trojan horse to some nations because it came as a cheap alternative to whatever else was. Being well, the built. Chinese gear was cheaper and of higher quality. I mean, the European vendors had more expensive and not as good equipment. However, the Chinese gear, you know, is under the control of the Chinese military and Chinese intelligence agencies. So no matter how good they are or how cheap they are, um, it's not a good idea to, to deploy that and then depend on that for your, your whole country's network infrastructure. Shop and Bit is the online store where you can buy anything with your Bitcoin. Choose between more than 800,000 products, book flights and hotels, and order everything else through the concierge service. With Shop and Bit, you can buy your weekly groceries, get the latest iPhone, upgrade your computer, buy something sexy for your new girlfriend, book a trip to El Salvador through the travel hacking service, and also grab a copy of the latest Bitcoin takeover magazine to read in the airplane. Everything is integrated with a familiar shopping experience that doesn't track you and deletes your data after the order gets completed. You also get a 3% discount if you pay in Bitcoin. Try Shopping Bit today and use promo code BTCTKVR for a 5 euro discount on your first order. So, Mr. Zimmerman, how can people follow your work and keep up with what you're doing and maybe send you an email or whatever? Well, you'll find my contact information on my website, philzimmerman.com. You have to be careful how you spell that. Uh, Zimmerman should have two N's. Because <laughs> there's another guy named Phil Zimmerman. He's got a website. It's philzimmerman.com. Oh, really? With one N. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, if you go to my website, you can find my email address and contact information. Thank you very much for your time. I have a lot of respect for your work. And best of luck with everything. 
All right. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe, leave a comment, and like this episode.